according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth this evening comes from the scriptures, as always. Join me once again in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 19, towards the end of the chapter, verses 49 through 51. We just have to wrap up three final verses there, and then we will move on to chapter 20 and chapter 21. Before we do that, though, this is Wednesday night, so we want to take question and answer time. And I just remembered a um, discussion I was having before class started. <clears throat> the uh, class Ralph was teaching me on the phone today came from Revelation chapter 4 and 5, talking about the scene in heaven with the 24 elders. and the <clears throat> Anyway, I had forgotten, and it just came to me. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, I thank you for the living and abiding Word of God. It is alive and powerful. It accomplishes its work in us who believe. And we know tonight, Father, as we come before you in faith, that your Word will accomplish its purpose. It will not return void. It will accomplish that purpose for which you sent it. So we look forward to seeing what you do and how you do it. And we just thank you for being so faithful, Father. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do have a few minutes here for some Q&A. And one thing that was pending from last week, I had promised, I made myself a note that said, prepare a better answer for next week. And that was my note that I attached to Galatians 3.19 and Acts 7.53. And... um, Not only should I prepare a better answer, I should prepare a better note. (laughs) So what I want to do tonight is I want to clarify the question. And this was your question, was it not? Who had the question on? Somebody had the question on Galatians 3.19. About the ordaining, yeah. So Mario, was that your question? So what I remember your question being is, with respect to the, the, the verb to ordain, is there a better translation for that? Or what is the sense in which angels ordained the law? Is that what you were asking about? Right, right, as far as giving or transmitting. But, but actually that flies in the face of, of, uh, of the text because the text tells us that Moses had a face-to-face relationship with, with the angel of the Lord. And so... Um, the only way we could think of it as being mediated by angels is by, you know, limiting that expression to the uh, to the angel of the Lord, being you know God the Son in, in a Christophany, being the angel of the Lord. There were other angels present, and this is what really launched the whole topic was in uh, Deuteronomy thirty three, because um, in the song of Moses, or in the blessing of Moses here. Uh, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth on Mount Paran. So right away we got a puzzle to figure out. There's three different mountains there in the one verse, from Sinai to Seir to Paran. And then he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. And uh, we, we accept that as being angels and, and whatnot. He came from heaven and he revealed himself and he gave the law to Moses. 
His, uh, at his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. And all the thunder, all the lightning, all the, the fire was terrifying for the Jewish people and they stayed at a distance horrified by it. This text indicates that they were angels but this text does not indicate that those angels transmitted the law. That Moses received the law directly from the Lord and he spoke to the Lord face to face. So there remain questions in my mind as far as better ways that we can render um, the expression in Acts 7.53 you who receive the law as ordained by angels and uh, the the verb that's used in in Galatians 3.19 having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And so I want to do more work on that, on the verb, on the noun, on even the, the preposition, dia plus the genitive, if there's something there that can render the concept of, of delivering that makes them observers rather than transmitters. Because that's fundamentally what the angels are. The angels are bearing witness. And they're bearing witness to the law as it's given. They're bearing witness to the church as as we function in the church age. So I'm going to leave this marked red for another week and I'm going to continue working on it now that I think I've got clarity on your question. And that way I can have uh, more clarity on that answer. We'll see if I can come up with something either related to the, the, the verb or the preposition that might that might relate. So with that being tabled for the week. Do we have other questions? Fresh questions, new questions for tonight. Let's go to Cornelius. We'll get uh, we'll start there. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. Try again. All right. All right. Besides the uh, uh, the uh, conquests of uh, Canaan mm-hmm. and the casualties that they had with Achan, right? Besides that, were there any other casualty noted in the Bible of them conquering in Canaan? None that are explicitly stated. No. In fact, it's it's remarkable. There's tremendous record of all their victories uh, other than the, the, the first attack on Ai where they lost 36 soldiers um, and like you say the, the death of Achan and his family there. We don't have explicit text that tells us that you know so many hundreds were, were killed or thousands were killed. Or it, it, it seems like most of those victories were overwhelming victories with either no loss of life or a very small loss of life. You can't imagine that nobody died but then again if God's the one that's fighting for them, maybe, maybe nobody died. You know, it, it is interesting. That's a good question, though. Thank you for that. Other questions for tonight? Also, keep a, keep an eye on the. Do we have the the chat thing activated on YouTube? Okay. All right, Carol, you have a question. Okay, thought you were indicating. We will have extra time maybe at the end of class too if some other classes, other questions come up.
All right. Otherwise, we'll just jump right into our material and then save some time at the end of class for uh, maybe some more Logos demonstrations. Uh, also, if you are interested in taking uh, a Logos class, we, we brought it up last night and I've spoken to a couple of folks and it looks like Monday night at 7 o'clock could be uh, a good time for the folks that want to participate. Uh, so um, if that's the case, then uh, we'll we'll solidify that, put it in the newsletter and the bulletin and, and make it make it happen. We'll kind of book you know, a handful of Monday nights in the future to do that. I think um, uh, I want to focus too, especially on initial download, installation, setup, some of the, just the basics for how to get off the ground and how to, how to get up and running, and then how to do some of the preliminary things like how to set your preferred Bible, how to set your default text and, and things like that. So, uh, and I do want to use GoToMeeting instead of trying to come in here. Uh, I think it's best if everybody's at home, if everybody's using their own equipment, then um, uh, not only can I share my screen and, and, and walk you through the steps, but then uh, you'll have the opportunity to share your screen. And uh, there's even functionality where you can even relinquish keyboard and mouse control, things like that, uh, where you know I can walk you through the process there too. So I think that'll be a useful series of classes if we did you know four of those or six of those or however many we end up doing. So um, yeah, thank you for that. We'll, uh, we'll make that happen. All right, last call for YouTube. Anything there? All right. Well then, let's look at, this is day 91. Day 91 in the Through the Bible Calendar, which takes us uh, the last three verses of Joshua 19, uh, then Joshua chapter 20, and Joshua chapter 21. Um, Then tomorrow we'll have 22, 23, 24, and that will conclude the book of Joshua. So uh, we're wrapping up Joshua this week, then uh, Judges next week. And we got the book of Judges in seven sessions, and that covers seven teaching sessions next week, Sunday through Thursday. So uh, on it goes. Picking up where we left off, and uh, we have been dealing with Dan and Dan uh, seemed to have no success in the tribe that was a lot in the territory that was allotted to them. So they they picked on a town up north and they said, "Hey, we can go conquer those guys." And they kind of relocated themselves to uh, a place up north, uh, really uh, kind of nestled on the, the the boundary borderland there between uh, a couple of the northern tribes, but Manasseh and Naphtali, and in uh, those issues. All right, which gets us to point seven in the chapter nineteen outline. The final land grant was the personal request of Joshua within the hill country of Ephraim. Remember, Joshua was the faithful spy from the tribe of Ephraim, just like Caleb was the faithful spy from the tribe of Judah. And we've already gone through the uh, the survey of the land when uh, it was being marked out for the tribe of Ephraim. But now at this point, uh, Joshua has his own personal request. And so we'll see this here, a uh, town known as Simnath Sarah. Just as the land apportionment had begun with Caleb back in Joshua 14, it now concludes with Joshua. And that's kind of a neat literary feature, uh, kind of a neat uh, set of bookends, if you will, for this portion of the book of, of, uh, of Joshua. And uh, take a look at it here. So verse 49, when they finished apportioning the land for inheritance by its borders, the sons of Israel gave an inheritance in their midst to Joshua the son of Nun. In accordance with the command of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked, Timnath-Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim. So he built the city and settled in it. 
Remember, from what we see in the text, I've commented upon this a couple of times now, as each stage is finished, there is more work to be done for the next segment. So in other words, when the national conquest was complete, that left more unfinished business for the tribes to do. The tribes would have their own conquest that they would have to undertake. Likewise, when the tribal land grants were delineated then, there was more work to be done because the clans would have to come and then subdivide the, the tribal allotments for what they are, see. And then even beyond that, once a clan had its own particular territory, and once they decided that, okay, the headquarters for this clan is going to be this locality, then there's going to be further subdivisions, further arrangements are going to be made within the clan for the actual uh, houses or for the families then that make up those clans. So uh, just pay attention to that, and don't be surprised when we see more of this that comes up uh, throughout the rest of, of this book and then on into the book of Judges. So again, verses 49 and 50 there. Uh, but it was by the command of the Lord, according to the word of the Lord, as it's given here, the mouth of the Lord, they gave him the city for which he asked. So uh, he put the request in and, and God provided. Timnath Saran, the hill country of Ephraim, built the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel distributed by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting, so they finished dividing the land. Remember there were seven slowpokes, seven uh, slugs we were talking about last night that uh, that Joshua was really beside himself. He couldn't believe that they were so slow about uh, about organizing their, their land and the settlement of the land. So he got them together and he forced them. He appointed three accountable parties for each tribe and he started drawing by lots uh, which uh, which land grant they were going to get. And, uh, and really uh, force the issue, put it in gear. And uh, I think there's a lot of things we can glean from that, whereby if, if something seems to not get done, in fact, I think there's good tactics here for pastors and deacon boards, for example, pa- pastors and people with responsibilities, is not just sit around and say, well, somebody ought to do it someday, uh, just actually assign it as an action item and say, all right, you're the one that's accountable, make an action plan and report back. And uh, you're the one that's going to be uh, held to account as far as you know getting it done in the uh, in the mode there. So long before Larry the Cable Guy was was Joshua and his get her done attitude, uh, making sure that these these people got the land divided and uh, organized and uh, and set up the way that they did. Okay, now this gets us to chapter twenty, pretty short chapter. As you will notice, just scrolling down, you get to verse 9, and that's it for the chapter. All right, six cities of refuge. The Lord had directed Joshua to establish the six cities of refuge that he had previously instructed them in. So back to Numbers 35. If you were here that night or if you're familiar with it, in Numbers 35 was a long description of the of the cities of refuge and what they were designed for, the function that they had. They were among the 48 cities of the Levites. Uh, uh, the Levites were given 48 cities scattered throughout the 12 tribes. The tribe of Levi did not have a, a territory assigned to them. They didn't have jurisdiction over a, a plot of land, but they had cities scattered throughout all the other tribes and their uh, land grants. And so of those cities, of those uh, localities then, uh, 48 of them, six of them were designated to be uh, not only Levitical cities, but to be cities of refuge. And so as a city of refuge then, 
um, as you look through the details there in Numbers 35, you have uh, the, the description of the purpose so that the, the manslayer can flee there and, and reside there as a refuge, somebody that took a human life, but it was not uh, murder, it was not premeditated, it was not uh, an, an intentional murder, and so he has a defense against the death penalty. Remember, the murderer was required to be put to death, that the consequence of shedding man's blood was uh, that by man his blood must be shed. That's a principle that's older than Mosaic law. That's a principle that goes back to the flood. It goes back to when Noah and his family got off the ark in Genesis chapter 9. Capital punishment is a mandate for humanity as being the image bearers of God. And shedding innocent blood is an offense against uh, not only God's nature as the living God, but also God's uh, purpose of redemption and His design whereby uh, there's a lot of theology that's connected to innocent blood. And the, the substitute that our Savior has in, in laying down His life as the payment for our iniquity and all these principles that are at work. So for when, when Satan, the liar from the beginning and the murderer from the beginning, when he has his, uh, his work in the midst of uh, human beings causing us to, to shed innocent blood, it, is, uh, it, is, it, it comes under swift judgment in, in the plan of God. So anyway, all of that is the backdrop for these cities of refuge. And so that a, uh, if it, in the cases of an accident where it was not premeditated murder, when um, you know, men were struggling and, 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 the, man, and the, the consequences did result in death, but it was not murder, then they can flee so as to get a free tri- a fair trial. They can they can stand judgment and uh, they can have their case adjudicated. And by being in the city of refuge, they are protected against the goel. They're protected against the uh, what in the book of Ruth calls the redeemer. What uh, Numbers thirty three call or thirty five calls the blood avenger. The blood avenger. Same word, different concept. Okay, and so we got to understand how these things come together theologically. Anyway, all of that was directed way back in Numbers 35, and now finally the instructions have been given to provide for six of these. Three are going to be on the west side of the Jordan, three are going to be on the east side of the Jordan, so that uh, whichever side uh, the tribe happened to be in, there would be one uh, in proximity to run to. So we can see it here in verses 1 through 6. Uh, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. And this is where you're going to have that goel terminology. So pay attention to that. You just want to open up your uh, interlinear panel there and click on Avenger, and you'll see it's not a Marvel superhero movie, okay? It is um, the Goel that we're going to see the the preeminent doctrine of that coming up in the book of Ruth. That's the whole uh, issue there with uh, Elimelech dying and, and the issues there. Anyway, in this case, it's the Avenger of Blood. Close that, turn that off. Here we go. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. 
And so at the gate, he's declaring his status. This is uh, an asylum request. This is refuge until such time as his case can be adjudicated. If the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, until the death of the one who was high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city and to his own house to the city from which he fled. So really there's two options there. Uh, but, and, but that presupposes, of course, that he is adjudicated as innocent. That, it, that they do determine, the fair trial determines once they investigate that he is not a murderer. Because if he is a murderer, then the city of refuge doesn't help him at all. If he is a murderer, he will be put to death as a murderer. And the blood avenger gets to cast the first stone. His hand will be the first hand to be raised against him. And the, and the issues there. All right. And then, so yes, when he's, when he's innocent, then he gets to live there and, and, and not be put to death. And then everything reboots when the high priest dies. And so at the death of the high priest, then, and you're kind of, I guess you're hoping that he's an older man, <laughs> but whatever the case, uh, whenever uh, the high priest does pass away then and a new high priest takes office, then the, uh, the manslayer is released he no longer has to stay in the city of refuge, and the blood avenger is is no longer um, eligible to uh, to affect the judgment. So, if the guy tries to sneak out of town early while the high priest is still alive, in other words, if he breaks his restraining order or whatever you want to call the uh, the ankle monitor that he has, if he if he leaves the city of refuge before the high priest is dead, then the uh, the blood avenger is fully legally able. To uh, to execute him in uh, in that in such a case, okay, as it may be. All right. Well, that's the first six verses there. Then verses seven through nine, Israel set apart three cities within Canaan and three cities across the Jordan, and that's the stipulation that we have here. So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali. Is that north or south? North. All right. Excellent. No fair. And. Uh, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. North or south? Trick question, actually. It's more in the middle. Yeah. And then Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. All right, that's definitely south. So from north to middle to south, when you have those plotted like that. Okay? And again, anytime you get this, just right click the location. If you're reading something and you say, you know what, I bet you that's a place. That looks like a place name, right? Because it's capitalized, in context, it looks like a place name. Sure enough, you're going to find it halfway down the left-hand column, Kedesh in northern Galilee, place, and then pull it up in the atlas. And not only are you going to see it there in the atlas, you're going to have, um, looks like this is the map I most recently had open, but you have other maps that have Kedesh plotted. And you may decide, you know what, I want this one. This one here that has the Levitical cities and cities of refuge. Let me switch to that map. And by switching to that map, now I'm going to have all of the cities, uh, the Levitical cities plotted with that symbol. Yeah, the circle is the Levitical city and the plus sign is the city of refuge. So maybe that's a, a more useful map for 
tonight's study or for whatever study as you may uh, as you may be doing it. So there's your Kedesh right up there. And where is your there it is, your Shechem right there. And then down south, of course, Hebron, there's your plus sign right there. All right, just like that. Beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they designated Bezer in the wilderness of the plain from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. So that's kind of interesting. On the west side, it seems like it went from north to south, and on the east side, looks like to me anyway, it went from south to north there with Bezer and Ramoth and Golan. Right. Paper. Yes, I do like the fact that they they put the guesses on there. That's right. And I see what they've done here too. Is they're they're counting Bezer as an equivalent of Basra. And I think that's probably right. And then there's Ramoth in Gilead. And there's Golan. All right, so three on the west, three on the east. Kind of scattered north, mid, and south. Good to know. Just in case you ever happen to accidentally kill somebody in ancient Israel, you can run to one of those cities of refuge. All right, by the way, they no longer have those procedures in place today in the modern state of Israel. They've got a different legal system. All right, so yes, uh, beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, there's Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. That, I mean, if you're not Jewish but you're sojourning there, you have to abide by the, by the law of the land. Whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the congregation. Okay, so then we get to chapter 21. And it's a long chapter and also has a parallel text in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. And one of the neat things of what uh, Ron Rhodes has done for us is that he streamlined a lot of these parallel texts for us so that we can read them on the same day, we can cover the same concepts and material, and we don't have to have later on, we don't have to have a redundant reading whereby we, we go back and we have to outline 1 Chronicles chapter 6 because essentially the same content, the same subject matter, the same issues uh, are present here. So 48 Levitical cities distributed here in chapter 21. Once the tribes received their inheritance, it was then their privilege to give to the Levite cities and pasture lands for their support. Now this is where I think it's useful to stop and consider uh, a Levitical city that's in a territory doesn't change territories. It still stays within that tribal territory. It's just identified with uh, the Levites. And so 
the residents of that city could be, a, and, and most likely always are going to be, a combination of members of that tribe and the Levites themselves. And so there's going to be a lot of intermarriage where daughters are given to sons and sons are given to daughters, and there's going to be uh, a lot of that. In fact, we have a fair amount of that in uh, between Judah and Levi when we see in the in the Gospels, when we find out that Mary is, co- is cousins with, with Elizabeth. And because Zechariah and Elizabeth are both Levites, and in fact he's a priest, but Mary is Davidic of the of the house of David of the tribe of Judah. So what is the what is the relationship there? How do we link the tribe of Judah together with the tribe of Levi? Well, there was a lot of that actually, and uh, we're going to see more of that in the book of Judges because we're going to see Bethlehemites that are either Benjamites or Levites or or both in uh, in some of these stories that come up. So. Yeah, I think it's useful to highlight when we see these cities that uh, that they actually become shared territory. So the heads of the households of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. So now it's you know what they've been cooling their their heels all this time while the tribes are dividing up land and conquering and doing what they're doing. So they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying. The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities within their pasture lands according to the command of the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord. I think the, yeah, the mouth of the Lord. So, and they're going to do it by lot. We see a lot of things that are a lot of things that are done by lot, but the uh, the random draw, by the way, is useful because it leaves everything in the hands of God's sovereignty, and it uh, removes any accusations of favoritism or any accusations of of uh, of of uh, you know misdeeds that these ne'er do wells might do. So the clans of Levi are going to receive their cities by lot. So starting with. Um, the Aaronic priests from the clan of Kohath received 13 cities from Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. And that's what we read here in verse 4 and in verses 8 through 19. And, and this, this uh, chapter is actually outlined kind of in an interesting way because we have verse 4 and then a break, verse 5 and then a break, verse 6 and then a break, and then verse 7 and a break. So it might actually be helpful just to read the study notes first and then go read the text. Um, Starting with the Aaronic priests from the clan of Kohath, they get mentioned in verse 4, and then other clans are going to get mentioned in verses 5, 6, and 7. Before we circle back to... I hate using that. Before we circle back to uh, the Aaronic priests and, and their information in verses 8 through 19. The remainder of the clan of Kohath is going to receive ten cities from Ephraim, Dan, and half Manasseh, or West Manasseh, whatever you want to call them, introduced in verse 5, and then detailed in verses 20 through 26. Thirdly, the clan of Gershon receives 13 cities from Issachar, Asher, and Ephtali, and half Manasseh. That's East Manasseh. And uh, they get the third lot, and that's mentioned in verse 6, and then the detail for that comes in verses 27 through 33. Finally, the fourth lot goes to the clan of Merari. No surprise there, they're the last clan available. They get the last lot. 
And uh, Merari receives 12 cities from Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. That's introduced in verse 7 with the additional detail that follows in verses 34 through 40. I hope that made sense. All right, so starting in verse 4, the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites and the sons of... And, and however they did it, however they drew the lots, however they marked the stones and whatever, they, they colored them, they marked them, they identified them in one fashion or another, and then they put them in the bag and mix them up and draw them out. Anyway, the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, who were of the Levites, received 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah and from the tribe of the Simeonites and from the tribe of Benjamin. So that was the lot that determined that those tribes were going to give up this, this number of cities to the priests. Okay? And remember, the bigger tribes had to give up more. The smaller tribes didn't have to give up quite as many. Verse 5, the rest of the sons of Kohath, the ones that aren't priests, okay? because remember it's only the, the house of Aaron that forms the priests. Every other non-Aaronic family line from uh, the, the clan of Kohath is just considered a Levite from the clan of Kohath. So the rest of the sons of Kohath received ten cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Ephraim and from the tribe of Dan and from West Manasseh, the, the half-tribe of Manasseh. Verse 6, and there'll be more detail coming in lower verses. Verse 6 is the third lot. Gershon received 13 cities by lot. And these are the tribes that have to cough them up. Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and the other half of Manasseh. The half, uh, the half tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. What we would call East Manasseh. That's, Bashan is that region across the Jordan River. The, uh, the fourth lot in verse 7. Sons of Merari, according to their families, received 12 cities. And then the only tribes left that haven't given up cities would be Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. All right, with Reuben and Gad being on the east side and Zebulun being on the west side. Okay, so that's the, basically the headings in uh, verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. Now starting with verses 8 through 19, we're backing up to the Aaronic uh, the priests here. And the details there. So the sons of Israel gave by lot to the Levites these cities with their pasture lands as the Lord had commanded through Moses. They gave these cities, which are here mentioned, by name from the tribe of the sons of Judah, from the tribe of the sons of Simeon. They were for the sons of Aaron, one of the families of the Kohathites, of the sons of Levi, for the, their lot was first. Thus they gave them Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah with its surrounding pasture lands. Now keep in mind, that doesn't mean that it's no longer under Judah's sovereignty, and that doesn't mean that it's not also a personal residence that was assigned to Caleb. Caleb had requested Kiriath Arba. Caleb had requested uh, Hebron for his own personal blessing. And so really, the designation of Hebron is, is really threefold, not just twofold. Because it's, it's assigned to the tribe of Judah, but it's assigned personally to the, to the house of, of Caleb, and then it's assigned uh, to, as a Levitical city. So Caleb and his descendants are, are blessed to have uh, you know, Levites amongst them in their midst. Imagine Caleb would be thrilled to have uh, Levites nearby. For the fields of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. We dealt with that in an earlier chapter. 
Also, we've talked about who was Arba and who was Anak and what were these, what were these uh, uh, giants like, these Nephilim that uh, the Anakim were considered to be Nephilim. They were considered to be Rephaim. We talked about that as well. And you say, oh, Pastor Bob's going back into the angel realm again. Every time, okay? Every time. It's, it's freaky how frequently the angels come up in, in these passages. Uh, verse 13, to the sons of Aaron, the priest gave Hebron, the city of refuge for the manslayer with its pasture lands, and Libna with its pasture lands, and Jatir with its pasture lands, and Eshtemoa with its pasture lands, and Holon with its pasture lands. So we're getting the city of refuge mentioned first, and then these other cities mentioned following. And Devere with its pasture lands, and Ain with its pasture lands, and Judah with its pasture lands, and Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands. Nine cities from these two tribes. From uh, So nine cities from these two tribes. From the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its pasture lands, Geba with its pasture lands, Anathoth with its pasture lands, Almon with its pasture lands. Four cities. Alright? So nine and four, thirteen. Didn't tell me there was going to be math tonight. This is, <laughs> all right. So all the cities of the sons of Aaron, the priests, were 13 cities with their pasture lands. All right, then the cities from the tribe of Ephraim were allotted to the families of the sons of Kohath, the Levites, even to the rest of the sons of Kohath. So again, now we have the verses with the details that expand out what we already read in verse 5. The remainder of the clan of Kohath, that's not Aaron, not the priests, but the non-priest clan of Kohath, then, they get ten cities combined between Ephraim, Dan, and West Manasseh. So the cities from the tribe of Ephraim were allotted to the families of the sons of Kohath, the Levites, even the rest of the sons of Kohath, that is, the non-priests. They gave them Shechem, the city of refuge for the manslayer with his pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim. And so again, starting with the city of refuge and then also indicating the other cities as well. Um, that would include Gezer. I love that, my favorite. Gezer with its pasture lands and Kibzaim with its pasture lands and Beth Horon with its pasture lands. Four cities. From the tribe of Dan, Elteki or Elteka with its pasture lands, Gibeathon with its pasture lands, Aijalon with its pasture lands, Gathrimmon with its pasture lands. Four cities. That's four and four, all right. What are we headed for? We're headed for ten altogether. From the tri- half-tribe of Manasseh, they allotted Tanakh with its pasture lands and Gathrimmon with its pasture lands, two cities. All right, four, four, and two, that's ten. All the cities with their pasture lands for the families of the rest of the sons of Kohath were ten. That agrees with what we already read up in verse five. All right, now uh, verse six was the third lot given to Gershon, 13 cities, from Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and the other half of Manasseh. The details come in verses 27 through 33. All right. Are we, are we, are we tracking? All right. Are you bored yet? No, actually, this is, this is interesting. The detail is interesting. And I'm personally thankful that our God is a God that keeps track of the details. Because, you know, I, I lose track of details. And I know that... that God's got me covered when I've forgotten something, when I've lost track of something. And God has not. He, he has the hairs of my head that are numbered. He's got everything all planned out. And, uh, and that, to me, that's a glory. I, I'm, I'm loving that. 
All right. So to the sons of Gershon, one of the families of the Levites from the half-tribe of Manasseh, they gave Golan in Bashan, the city of refuge for the man. So again, we're starting with the city of refuge. Golan in Bashan, the city of refuge for the manslayer with its pasture lands, and Ba'eshterah with its pasture land, two cities. That's kind of cool. Tracks with the two cities the other half Manasseh gave up on the west side. From the tribe of Issachar, they gave Kishion with its pasture lands, Dabaroth with its pasture lands, Jarmuth with its pasture lands, Enganim with its pasture land, four cities. All right, so that's two and four. From the tribe of Asher, they gave Mashal with its pasture lands, Abdon with its pasture lands, Helkath with its pasture lands, and Rehob with its pasture lands, four cities. I always want to say Hellcat. Every time I can, you know, maybe it's just, I don't know. Was that the original Hellcat? Did they drive Dodge Chargers? What did they have? All right. All right, so we've got two cities, we've got four cities, we've got four cities. That's 10. What are we aiming for? We're aiming for 13. All right. From the tribe of Naphtali, they gave Kedesh in Galilee, the city of refuge for the manslayer with its pasture lands, and Hamoth Dor with its pasture lands, and Kartan with its pasture land. Three cities. Bingo, we hit it again. Two and four and four and three, that's 13. So all the cities of the Gershonites, according to their families, were 13 cities with their pasture lands. And and some of this, too, is kind of a curiosity to me, too. And I know Titus is working on population figures and other things and related to not only the exodus, but also the conquest, also the settlement. Also the settlement. How does, does, you know, a clan, do they have enough population to fill 13 cities? Say, and do they, you know, do they, are they exclusive to those cities? Or, you know, are they intermixed in those cities with various uh, Naphtaliites or Gershon or uh, Issacharites or Asherites or, or, or things like that. I, I think clearly they're blended together. And almost most of the scholars I've read anyway accept these cities as being multi-cultural, um, multi-tribal, you know, with, with Levites and non-Levites blended together in those locations. Anyway, uh, we got the next lot, Merari, the fourth and final lot. Introduced in verse 7, now the details come in verses 34 through 40. Verse 7 told us there were 12 cities that were going to be coming from Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. So to the families of the sons of Merari, the rest of the Levites, they gave from the tribe of Zebulun, Jokneam with its pasture lands, and Kartah with its pasture lands, Dimna with its pasture lands, Nahalal with its pasture lands, four cities. From the tribe of Reuben they gave Bezer, with its pasture lands, and Jahaz, with its pasture lands, uh, Kedemoth, with its pasture lands, and Mafaoth, with its pasture lands, four cities. So that's four and four. From the tribe of Gad, they gave Ramoth and Gilead, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands, and Mahanaim, with its pasture lands, Heshabon, with its pasture lands, Jazer, with its pasture lands, four cities in all. So that's four, four, and four, adds up to twelve. All these were the cities of the sons of Merari, according to their families. The rest of the families of the Levites and their lot was 12 cities. Now my only glitch in any of this is, um, and it didn't dawn on me just now, wasn't Bezer one of the ones that was designated as a, maybe it's a different Bezer, as a city of refuge from the tribe of Reuben. I'll have to look at that. I'm sorry? 
Oh, Bezor, not Bezer. Okay. Gotcha. All right, so 12 cities. Let's look at the summary here in verses 41 and 42. All of the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the sons of Israel were 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its surrounding pasture lands. Thus it was with all these cities. And this, this, the scattering of Levi, it's kind of interesting, the scattering of Levi throughout the other 12 tribes provided for accurate Bible teaching in every community. Remember the Levites were not only assistants in, uh, with, the, with the priests as far as the, the liturgical functions of uh, offerings and sacrifices and the holy days of, of, uh, of butchering animals and pouring out blood and all the, all the things that go with the animal ritual and the, the, the cult, if you will. Beyond those duties, the, the Levites were, were Bible teachers. The Levites were instrumental as teachers of law, as uh, arbiters of dispute. They could uh, settle difficult questions. They could, uh, they could prove to be you know, um, impartial uh, uh, arbiters if, if uh, different clans of a tribe were having issues. Well, let's go to the Levites and ask them to resolve it. That way the Levite doesn't have skin in the game where he's going to pick sides in, among families or clans there. You know, or even just inspecting um, spots on the arm to see if it's leprosy or other things. They had to provide inspections on, on uh, skin and houses, housing inspections and clothing inspections for, uh, for leprosy and other things like that. Anyway, scattered throughout um, the 12 tribes, provided for accurate Bible teaching in every community. Someone has estimated that, and I don't know who, and the person I stole this quote from evidently didn't know who, Someone has estimated that no one in Israel lived more than 10 miles from one of the 48 Levite towns. That's kind of interesting, I guess, if you plot them all and, and try to plot all the other towns, and I guess that's true. Uh, thus, every Israelite had, nearly, uh, had nearby a man well-versed in the law of Moses who could give advice and counsel in the many problems of religious, family, and political life. And remember, this is what they, the, the goal was. The whole function of the law, or much of what the law was designed to, to promote, is the personal holiness among the tribes and the clans and the families. And so beyond just questions of ritual uh, are the fundamental issues of holiness and, and, and the view on the nature of God and, the, and the, the viewpoints of how do we function in our, in our bios life. And if we want our bios life to be shaped by our Zoe life, who better to ask than these, these Levites that are dedicated to the, to the teaching of the law? So we have, uh, we have those issues there. Then verses 43 through 45, the summary statement for the conquest is most interesting. And I, I tell you, I'm glad we have time to, to cover this. Verses 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. Okay? He's still faithful. He's always faithful from generation to generation. He's faithful. He was not unfaithful when he commanded the, the Exodus generation to drop dead. They were unfaithful. And he's, he said, I'm going to demonstrate my faithfulness to your children's generation. He's still faithful. They're the ones that fell short, so they died in the wilderness. And, uh, but now they are reaping the promises that, that their parents uh, were given. And even before their parents, the patriarchs were given. Abraham was promised this land. Isaac was promised this land. Jacob was promised this land. And they were never given this land. But now the tribes, the descendants of those 12 uh, uh, patriarchs, they have now been given this land. 
So um, as, as God has promised, they're, they're receiving it. It's a grace gift. They possessed it and lived in it. Notice two different issues. Living there is not possession. They are two separate issues. And the enjoyment of the land is, is another question. And because uh, there's very frequently, uh, and, and even when we get to the captivity, they're expelled from the land. They still possess it. They're just not enjoying it. It's still their eternal promise. Verse 44 says, The Lord gave them rest on every side. We've got we to gotta explore this because the book of Hebrews says Joshua did not give them rest. And uh, we reconcile the passages that say he did and the passages that say he didn't. And we understand both passages are true. We reconcile them accordingly. So the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. In other words, when they chose to go out and fight, they won every time. So how do they end up with all these enemies still living in their midst? They never lost a battle. But there were battles they chose not to fight. There was a slackness in their decisions not to go forth and and conquer. And there's going to be some more discouragements that come along. And by the time we get through, and tomorrow we're dealing with chapters 22, 23, and 24 related to that. So the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. So if there's a promise and it fails, whose fault is that? Where does, where does that uh, land? Now these are the things that I put in the notes because I still, I still chew on these things. Each, uh, each tribe received their possession as a grace gift from the Lord. It's a promise. It's an I will. And he's, he's doing what he said he would do. Not only for the nation, but for each individual tribe. They were all recipients of this unconditional promise. Which is why Moses was correct on the three of the four times that he passed the test when God said, back off, I'm going to blast these people, nuke them all from orbit and start over with you. And Moses said, you can't do that. If, if Yahweh starts over with Moses, that means he's lying to 11 other tribes. Moses is not multi-tribal. Okay? Moses is one guy from one tribe. And so to, to blast all the Jews and start over with Moses wouldn't work. Because these are the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, that God made unconditional promises to. Each tribe was blessed with military victories in the conquest of that land. And we see some of the exploits, and there's more details than others. Uh, we had a lot of detail in particular related to Caleb and, and some of the battles he engaged in, especially when he offered up his daughter's hand in marriage. Uh, there's other details that we get, okay, and uh, issues there. Each tribe was blessed with military victories, including some of the more pathetic tribes that didn't have as many victories as they could have had. Well, none of the tribes had all the victories they should have had, but some of the tribes barely squeaked by with hardly nothing. And Danis, in particular, took it upon themselves to just go find a spot beyond you know, what, where they were told to go. Which is, uh, that's a, another commentary on its own. Many tribes failed to achieve every victory the Lord had for them. And so these two points, you know, just thinking about this, okay? Just thinking about every tribe was blessed with military victories, but many of these tribes, however, failed to achieve every victory that the Lord has. 
Those aren't contradictory statements. They both, both can be true at the same time, and frequently they are. Just as we, you know, we frequently have victories in our Christian walk. We have victories in the angelic conflict. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't fail every test we face. We pass a few things here and there. But when we do pass our tests, have we passed the test in every possible way? Or were there still incomplete aspects of, even with our past tests, are there still incomplete aspects whereby um, there is less than the full reward? Okay? In other words, um, you know, if, if you could think of gold, silver, precious stones as degrees, you know, you pass this test to a, to a precious stones level that could have been to a silver level or could have been to a gold level. If you know, that model works. Anyway, different aspects there. We can have victories, but not the total victories of what's designed. And that's illustrated here in these tribes. The shortcomings in Joshua and Judges are therefore Israel's shortcomings and not the Lord's shortcomings. Never is it the Lord's shortcoming when they fail. Ever. Okay? And we're going to see a few of these things and, and a couple of verses that come to mind. Um, plus more than just the two there that come to mind. I think in uh, in Hebrews four two, I just used this, and uh, you'll you'll be reading this in the newsletter on Sunday. Um, Hebrews four two. We have good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Is that the word's fault? If the word doesn't profit, do we blame the word? Never. Because the word is God-breathed and profitable, okay? But just because it's profitable, profitable, doesn't mean it always profits. It's profitable. It's also (laughs) non-profitable. The word itself is profitable, but when it does not profit, whose fault is that? Well, as we read here, the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. See, the reception of the word, claiming the promise, living out the faith rest life. So you have a promise in Scripture, it's the same promise, and your, your, your neighbor, uh, he claims it, he unites it with faith, he lives it out, great victory, hallelujah. You have the same promise, but you don't apply faith. You don't unite it by faith, like your brother did. And so... Uh, you don't have the faith rest victory. You, you fail the test. You blow it high, wide, and handsome, and, and everything is a train wreck. It's the same word, the same promise, the same truth. The only difference is, and it's alive and powerful. It's, it's God-breathed and profitable, but you did not profit from it because you didn't unite it with faith. That's the difference. So um, I would add Hebrews 4, 2 to uh, the verses that we have here. Romans 3, 3, you know, if some do not believe, what then, right? This is in this rhetorical section where Paul is saying, what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Huge advantage. The Hebrew people had the Hebrew scriptures. So, man, the edge they had over the Babylonians and the Romans and the Greeks and whoever else um, it, it's you know incalculable the the advantage to have the living and abiding word of God. What then, if some did not believe, in spite of the advantage, they didn't walk by faith. 
If some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Okay? God, if we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. The, the, the truth is, is uh, the shortcoming is not on God's end. Not, oh God, you really let us down. You were, your faithfulness was, you know, I can't sing great is thy faithfulness today. Now I've got I to sing, uh, you know, mediocre is your faithfulness. Okay, wait a minute. That's wrong. I'm the mediocre faithless. I'm the one that's not uniting the Word of God with faith. His, his faithfulness stays great. Second Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. It is impossible. Here is something God cannot do. God cannot deny Himself. Oh, these are powerful principles. Alright, so uh, that gets us through chapter 21. Tomorrow night we'll come back for day 92. Day 92 will conclude the book of Joshua because that will cover chapters 22, 23, and 24. It will also conclude our 13th week. We are officially one-fourth through the calendar year. 13 is one-fourth of, of 52 as every card player knows. You've got four suits of 13 cards. And uh, and we're uh, going to be one-fourth through with three-fourths more to go, and God is faithful. Um, talking to Warren Dowd earlier this afternoon, he asked uh, if uh, how it was going and if I was enjoying it. I said, Warren, enjoying it? Are you kidding me? This is the, the neatest thing I've ever done. This is a highlight of ministry. This is, I'm, I'm having the time of my life because this is, this is uh, just amazing watching what God does beyond anything that we could ask or think. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for tonight and your faithfulness. Um, And we do just give you the praise and the glory, Father. You are infinitely faithful all day, every day. We thank you and praise you, Father, for this Through the Bible series. We thank you for what we're gleaning in in Joshua. We're looking forward to the conclusion. We're looking forward to the choose you this day whom you will serve verse. We've been looking forward to that since we arrived in Joshua. And it's coming up tomorrow. I pray, Father, uh, just as we continue to move our way through the text, Father, that you keep uh, blessing us in this study. Give us the framework from Alpha to Omega, from Genesis to Revelation. Help us have the big picture from the Word of God. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.